We've all read Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 before, and we know that when Jesus was born, He was laid in the manger out among the animals because there was not place for Him found in the inn. When I was young, and up till just a few years ago, really, when I pictured this scene of there not being room for Jesus in the inn, I, I kind of had an idea of an ancient Motel 6, and they just hadn't left the light on for him. You know, that they just had rooms, and, and people would come in, and there just wasn't any vacancies, especially because there was this census taking place, and everybody was coming back. Sometime later, though, as I studied the history a little bit more, found out that inns of that day, what few there were, there, there weren't many inns. It wasn't like our day where you, you find them all over the place in, in larger cities or even smaller cities. I mean, sometimes I'm just amazed where you can find a motel and I think, what, who on earth would come visit this city and want to stay in a motel? But, but they're there. Uh, they didn't have that very much back in those days because, well, folks just practiced hospitality. You came to town and, and folks would welcome you into their home. Uh, but what I found out is that what ends there were we're not like our inns where there was a room for each family, but rather it was, it was a lot more like a hostel or even what we today would recognize as, as, as a shelter where there were large rooms and families and groups, all sorts of people in that same room. We might picture it like a homeless shelter even today as what it would look like. And so they'd all be in there. And so the picture was that there was all these families having come for the census and they're all in this room and, and now this woman's having this baby. And all these people are saying, look, we don't have room for your screaming baby in here. You all go someplace else. That was kind of the picture. But my friend Clay Gentry actually shared something with me this week that I didn't know. And, and it may change the picture even again. And that is that in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, the word that is translated in there, in most of our translations, is not the same word that we find in a passage, for instance, Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10... In verse 34 and 35, where Jesus is telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, as we call it, it says there that he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And, of course, the, the Samaritan set this Jewish man on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The word translated in, in Luke chapter 10, is pandokion, and it's the only place that it's used in Scripture. Now, here we know we're dealing with an inn of that day. There's an innkeeper. This would have been that place like we were talking about earlier that, that had large rooms that multiple families would be staying in. He brought this man there. That's, that is that inn. But the word in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 is not the same as this word. The word in Luke chapter 2 verse 7 is katalima. And we find it only in two other passages in the entire New Testament. Mark 14, 14 is one, and it's parallel passage that we'll look at in Luke chapter 22 and verse 11. Luke chapter 22 and verse 11, the disciples were trying to find a place for Jesus and his apostles to have the Passover. And in Luke chapter 22 and verse 11, Jesus sent them off to tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Guest room in this verse, and also Mark 14, 14, is the same word that is used in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. And now it's possible that the word in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 is still just another word for, the, for in, and yet this gives us a little bit different picture when we understand how these words are used differently. 
Because the picture here is not necessarily that all these people were traveling to Bethlehem and the motels and the hotels were all filled up, but rather that the guest rooms, the places that folks had set aside for people to come in and stay and to practice hospitality, there just wasn't room for them there. Let's add to that that Joseph is heading back to his ancestral home. Now, we don't know how long he's been away from Bethlehem. We don't know how long his family had been away from Bethlehem. But keep in mind, this means Joseph is going back to family. This ought to be a place where Joseph can find room in the guest room, in the inn. This ought to be a place where he can find room there. And yet when they get there, there's not. But let's add to this another aspect, something that's commonly mistaken. Commonly, we have this picture that Joseph and Mary went from Nazareth, they got to Bethlehem, and and as they were crossing the city borders, that was when she went into labor. As as, as if it was that exact same day, she goes into labor and everybody sees her in labor and says, no room here. That's not really what happened. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. What the passage is saying is they'd actually been in Bethlehem for a while. And while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. This is not just a, we crossed the city border and I'm in labor, we've got to find some place. This is, I've been here for a while. In fact, it sets up a picture that there had been room for them until the time came for her to give birth. And when this baby comes into the world, suddenly there's not room for them anymore. And we can kind of understand that. There's all these people coming back to Bethlehem, the inns, the guest rooms, whichever way you want to see it. There's all kinds of people there. And now all of a sudden there's this messy, screaming child. You can understand why folks would say, look, you're going to have to take him someplace else. But the thing I want us to see is that once Jesus came on the scene, there wasn't room for him. No one had room for him in their house or the inns. He was pushed to the side. And that's really not different than the rest of his life. In fact, it's a foreshadowing of what happened in his life. If we look in Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 57, somebody says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And then in Luke chapter 9 and verse 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, that's the way it was for Jesus. For his whole life, there wasn't room for him. As a baby, infant Jesus comes into the world, there's no room for him in the guest rooms or in the inn. And as a teacher, there's no room for him. Doors were closed on Jesus again and again. Rejection again and again. That wasn't always the case. Some folks had room for him. Again, in that passage in Luke 22 and verse 11, they came to the man saying, the teacher wants to know where your guest room is. And the man opened his doors and had room for Jesus and his disciples to come in and to take of the Passover. But usually, they didn't have room for Jesus. I'm sure you're already two steps ahead of me and know where we're going with this lesson. But we're really not concerned with whether or not there was room for little baby Jesus in the guest rooms of Bethlehem. What we're really concerned about is our own lives. Is there room for Jesus as Lord in our own lives? John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, beginning at verse 4, Jesus demonstrates why this is so important. He says in John 15 and verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus provides the picture of a vine shooting off of a branch. And He points out that the branch and the vine abide together. And only in that way does the vine bear fruit. If we want to bear fruit, we have to abide with Jesus. We have to allow Jesus to abide for us. So the question is, do we have room for Jesus in our lives? I think of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Here is a picture of the fact that there's so much room for Jesus that it's like we've killed ourselves and, and here we are and all we are is just a, a dwelling place for Jesus, for Him to come in and to, to tell us where to go and to tell us what to do. And, and there's nothing but room for Him. There's no room for anything else but Him. And so again, we ask the question, is there room for Jesus in our lives? Excuse me, in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, also verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. There he is, standing at the door. He's knocking. And he says, if, if, if you'll open the door, I'll come in and eat with you. And the sad thing here is this passage is not talking to non-Christians, telling them to become Christians. This is talking to Christians. Here were Christians that didn't have room for Jesus, and he's standing on the outside, knocking on the door. And that's the question for us. Do we have room for Jesus? Have we made room for Jesus in our lives? And if not, how do we do that? I want to share with you four things that we need to do to make room for Jesus to be in our lives and to be in charge of our lives so that we can be walking in His everlasting way, so that there will be room for us in God's eternity. Before we look at that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God in heaven, You are the awesome and powerful Creator of the world. We're so thankful that You've made room for us in this world, that You made it in a way that is perfectly suited for us, that we're able to survive, that we have air to breathe, water to drink, that we have food to eat, that we have relationships, family, friends, and especially brethren. But most of all, we're thankful that you've made room for us in your kingdom, that you sent your Son to die for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins. <coughs> we are thankful that you sent your Spirit to reveal the Word so that we might know how to be a part of your kingdom. Father, we pray that you would be with us and help us to make room for you, for your Son, for your Spirit. Help us to open the door and allow Jesus to dwell within us and allow Him to lead us. Father, we pray that You be with us this morning as we study Your Word, that our hearts will be open to what You have to say, that we'll let Jesus be our Lord, that we'll do what He says. Father, I pray that 
this lesson will be about you and not about me, that you will be glorified because you are, in fact, worthy of all honor and praise and glory. And we're so thankful for this opportunity you've given us to study your word. Be with us and bless us, Father, and help us to be a blessing to you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Making room for Jesus. The very first thing that we need to do if we're going to make room for Jesus is have humility. We've got to get rid of our pride. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17 demonstrated why these Christians had Jesus on the outside looking in. Why there was no room for Jesus in their lives. There it says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Here, these folks had the idea that all by themselves, that they were sufficient. It was their pride and their arrogance that kept Jesus on the outside. When they looked at themselves, they thought they didn't need anything. Who knows, perhaps their lives had been pretty decent. Maybe they'd made good money. Maybe they seemed to have been able to take care of everything. What they didn't recognize, because of all that affluence that they had, was that on the inside, as Jesus points out in verse 17, that what you don't know is that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's where we are on our own. Without Christ, it doesn't matter what kind of life we've had materially or physically. Perhaps we've been a very important person as far as the world is concerned. But on the inside, if we don't have Jesus, we are poor, pitiable, wretched, blind, and naked. And we need to have some humility. Humility is what opens the door. Jesus is knocking, saying, let me come in. Let me take care of you. Let me fix things. Let me help you. Let me clean some things up. And if we have the door slammed in His face, it's because of our own pride. And what we need is humility to recognize how much we really do need Jesus. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul said, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We must not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And if we think that we are making it through this life on our own, we are wretched and miserable, and we don't even know it. First Peter chapter 5. In First Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, Peter said, Humble yourselves. This is First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. If we're spending time in our arrogance and our pride trying to exalt ourselves and, and let ourselves know and let God know or let anyone know that we're able to do all this on our own, in time, we will be humble. But if we humble ourselves before God, opening the door to Jesus, allowing Him to come in, making room for Him, in time, then we'll be truly exalted. We make room for Jesus, opening the door for Him through humility. We open the door through humility, but we really allow Jesus to take residence through honesty. 
when I began to work on this lesson, one of the first things I said, oh, I know how we make room for Jesus. We make room for Jesus by cleaning out all the sins. That, that was the first thing that came to my mind. But as I thought about it, I thought, wait a minute, that, that's really not how it works. That sets up the idea of I'm going to work my way up to Jesus deciding that he'll live with me. And then I remembered what John 15 said about making room for Jesus. In John chapter 15 and verse 4, John chapter 15 and verse 4, you remember we read this just moments ago, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. We can't bear good fruit unless we're already abiding with Jesus. So if we have this idea that, oh, I make room for Jesus by, by getting rid of all the bad fruit and starting to produce good fruit, we've got it all backwards. It just really doesn't work like that. It's not let me clean up my house so that I can have room for Jesus to take residence. It's rather let me let Jesus take residence and He'll clean up my house. But this takes honesty. We have to be able to thoroughly and fearlessly take an examination of what's going on in our house. What is happening? What sins are there? What does need to be cleaned out? Sadly, all too often, what we want is for Jesus to come in and and just take a look at the parts that we've made presentable. You ever invite somebody over to your house and there's always a couple of the rooms that have the closed doors? Anybody else do that? That's the places where we don't want you to look. I have to get on to my kids all the time because I tell them, look, when people are coming over, keep the garage door closed. I don't want them seeing in there. And that's kind of what we do with Jesus. Well, yeah, we want you to come in and, and take a look at the living room. See, we've, we've spruced it up. you like the new curtains? Oh, that's the garage. You don't want to go in there. That's the closet. You don't need to look in there. Whatever you do, please don't look under the bed or under the sofa. And it's as if what we're saying is, let me get everything cleaned up And then we'll allow Jesus in. Instead, what we need to do is be honest with Jesus about what's really there. 1 John chapter 1 deals with this kind of honesty. In 1 John chapter 1, John talks to us about confession. Notice how confession and honesty go together in these verses. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see that? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And notice this. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. As long as we're trying to hide the sins, as long as we're trying to cover them up, as long as we're trying to say they're not there, we're just lying and making God a liar. But once we confess them and we expose the light on them, We pull back the rug. We lift up the cover so they can see under the bed. We open the closet door. When we start doing that, then it says God will dwell with us and He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to view that as more than just forgiveness. That's when He actually starts working on getting the unrighteousness out of our lives. But if we continue to say we haven't sinned, We just make him alive. The word confess translates the Greek word homologeo. 
Homo meaning same, logeo meaning words. Same words. Confess really means to say the same thing as. Confession is not just admitting that I'm a sinner. Confession is to say the same thing that God says about my sins. Now, God knows what sins are there. The issue is, are we going to say the same thing He does about them, or are we going to try to hide them, minimize them? We have to have the honesty. And when we have that honesty, then Jesus can come in and look around and see what's going on and cleanse us of unrighteousness. Look in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, used to be a very frightening passage for me. Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. These two verses used to frighten me because what I read them to be saying was, was David saying, hey, God, you can look at me. I've got it all worked out. You can search every nook and cranny in my heart and you won't find a grievous way, so I can now walk in your everlasting way. And that scared me because I know me and I know my sins and I know what I've done and I know what I struggle with. And there's that part of me that says, well, wait a minute, God, search me, but not this part. Because I don't want you to see what's over there. And I remember, wait a minute, that, that can't be right because this is David writing. And David is a sinner just like me. So I began to consider, well, what is he saying? He's not saying, God, I've become perfect and now I'm submitting myself to your testing gaze to prove it. What he's saying is, God, I'm messed up. And the only way I can be fixed is if you search my heart. If you find the grievous ways and clean them out so that I can follow your lead in the everlasting way. By myself, I follow the grievous way. By myself, that's where I am. No matter how good I look to everybody else, no matter how good my bottom line is in the checking account, no matter what kind of job I have or what kind of family I have, by myself, I'm walking in grievous ways. And there's only one way to get off of those and get on the everlasting way, and that's to open up and let Jesus have a look. And search me. Find the grievous ways. Help me to get rid of them so that I can follow you in the everlasting way. This is not saying I'll only make it on the everlasting way if I can present myself as perfect to Jesus. No, what this is saying is when I'm honest and let Jesus really look around, then He'll take care of the grievous ways and lead me in the everlasting way. If I keep trying to rely on me, I'm just not going to make it. We open the door through humility. We allow Jesus to take residence through honesty. But we really begin to abide with Jesus with time. You know, there are folks that live in the same residence, but they really don't live together. It's almost like in-house separation. They, their address is the same place on the street, but they have such different work schedules that they never see each other. Or even when they're home, they've each got TVs and computers in their own room, so they, they don't spend time together. They pick up their food at a fast food restaurant on the way home, and they all eat separately, and they're just not spending time together. These are folks that, while they sleep near each other, they're not together. And sadly, when it comes to making room for Jesus, there are some folks who are humble enough to say, I've messed everything up. They're honest enough to say, take a look and find all these ways and, and God, you're going to have to take care of it for me. But then they don't ever spend time with God, so He can't. 
The fact is, we need to have a constant connection with God. We need to be tied and bound to God. We need to spend time with God. Now, in our homes, the way we do that with each other is we might eat together, we might play games together, we might just sit down and talk together, or we go places together. Of course, our struggle with God is we don't visibly see God. And so it's hard for us to think about how do we spend time with God. I'll suggest to you that we spend time with God through the spiritual disciplines that connect us to Him and reveal His mind to us. We spend time with God through studying the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5 explains to us the great battle that we are in. Ephesians chapter, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. We're in a battle. And the only way we're going to win is if we are filled with the strength of God's might. We're not going to win this battle. We have to be connected to God. And what Paul says here is if you want to be connected to God, if you want to be with God and God be with you, you need to put on God's armor. He goes on to say, take up the, excuse me, stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's think about every aspect of that. Having fastened on the belt of truth, where are we going to find the truth? John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. How do we get that righteousness? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture was inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Where does it come from? The Word of God. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Well, where do we find that gospel? Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5 said that they found the gospel in the Word of truth. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. Take up the helmet of salvation. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, Paul told the Ephesian elders, I commend you to the Word of God and His grace. Because it can help you inherit the salvation that comes from God. And of course, the sword, well, he says the sword is the Word of God. How is it that we get that armor on? How do we have that connection to God? By spending time in God's Word. This is where we learn God's mind. This is how we draw close to God. If we're going to spend time with God, if we're going to spend time with Jesus, we've got to be in the Word. We need to spend time praying. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We need to be people who communicate to God. Bible study is how God reveals His mind to us. Prayer is how we make ourselves vulnerable to God. Prayer is how we turn our lives over to God. 
Not trying to bend Him to our will, but us being broken to His through prayer. And we go back to Ephesians chapter 6. And all the armor that was mentioned there in its connection to the Word of God, we must not forget that beginning in verse 18, He continues the armor, but now it's not a piece of armor, it's what we're shouting. The warrior walks onto the battlefield having armed himself and shouting his battle cry as we walk into the battlefield with our armor. Our battle cry, he says, is praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. If we want to be connected to God in this battle, we've got to be praying. Not shouting out our own strength, but shouting out God's strength as we pray. We spend time with God by studying the Scriptures, by praying. But I also think that we spend time with God. We spend time with Jesus when we spend time with God's family. When we spend time with others who are spending time with God. In Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, Luke records for us that those early Christians day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They spent time in the temple. That's talking about the church gathering as it assembles together like we're doing here. There at the beginning, they were assembling every day. But they were assembling, spending time with one another. Hebrews 10.25 says, don't forsake the assembling. When the church has come together, be there. Spend some time worshiping and praising God and honoring Him and edifying one another as the congregations come together. But that's not all they did there in Jerusalem. Not only did they come together as the congregation to do their congregational work, when that was done, they also spent time together because they were part of the congregation. And from house to house, they spent time with one another. And by doing that, they were spending time with God. I'm concerned about us these days. We've got so many things going on in our lives We've got Little League, we've got sports, we've got PTA, we've got work. We're also worried about our finances. How much time are we spending with one another outside of these walls? It doesn't have to be the potlucks where we all come together. How much time are we spending with other Christians in general? Because by doing that, we're spending time with God. When we spend time with God's children, we're spending time with Him. We've got to make sure as we look at these things, and I'm sure there are other disciplines we could come up with, but I think you're getting the idea here. We need not ask the question, all right, how much of that do I have to do? How much Bible study do I really have to do to get to heaven? How much praying do I have to do to get to heaven? Really, how many times a week do I have to spend time with other Christians in order to go to heaven? If that's the question you're asking, you're not going to do enough. Because the issue is not how much do I have to do to make the A so I can get into heaven. The issue is if I'm not spending time with God, I'm not going to be cleansed. My unrighteousness is not going to be removed. He's not going to clean that out, and so I'm not going to be in the everlasting way. This is a matter of survival. This is not a matter of earning something. This is a matter, if I'm not spending time in the Word, if I'm not spending time in prayer, if I'm not spending time with God's children, I'm just not going to make it. If I'm just trying to figure out how much I have to do to coast, I won't make it. I need to be asking, what more can I do? Because this is how I live. This is how I survive. This is how Jesus takes out every grievous way and leads me in the everlasting way. I need to spend time. But we need to understand that as we talk about making room for Jesus, we're not just talking about letting Him in the door. 
We're not just talking about letting, putting them up in the guest room. We're not just talking about spending our evenings with them. We're talking about making room for him to be in charge. We're not talking about allowing him to be a steward in the house. He is the manager of the house. We're not giving him a ride. We're letting him be the driver. He's not the stewardess or the steward or the servant in the back of the plane or even the co-pilot. He's the pilot. We let Jesus have the room to take charge by actually listening to him. There's a whole lot of Christians who are humble enough to say, I've messed everything up, who are honest enough to say, take a look, here it all is, and who are going through the motions of these things to spend time with God, but they don't ever allow it to impact them. They don't ever allow it to change their lives. Sure, they know the Scriptures, and they can be the first to let us know when the church has stepped a toe off the pattern line, and they'll be the first to knock on the elder's door and complain or harp on the preacher or go to another congregation as if another congregation is going to be perfect. And yet, sadly, too many, even in those situations, have not allowed Jesus' lordship to penetrate their own heart. They're filled with arrogance and pride, believing they have the answer to all the questions and and can fix everybody else's life. Rebellious in their homes. Cutthroat on the job, backstabbing and vengeful. Curse and lie and gossip and slander. Lust, cheat. Because they're not allowing it to get down in the heart and change it. We make room for Jesus to take charge by actually listening. By doing what He says even when we don't like it. By doing what He says even when we don't understand why it works that way. By surrendering our lives to Him even if we would prefer to do something else. In Matthew Chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not enough to call Jesus Lord. We actually have to do what he says. Luke 6 and verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? There's a difference between calling Jesus Lord and making Him Lord, making room for Him to be Lord. If you find yourself arguing against what Scripture says, you may be doing all kinds of wonderful things, but you're not making room for Jesus to be Lord. If somebody has wronged you, and instead of you going to them to talk to them about it, You're talking to others about it or or just not talking at all, waiting on them to be the ones that come and apologize. Then you're not letting Jesus be Lord in your life because Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following says, if someone sinned against you, go to him by yourself. If you're going to let Jesus be Lord, that's what you're going to do when someone has wronged you. If you're holding a grudge against your spouse or really against anybody, you're not going to deal with that. And you're not letting Jesus be Lord of your life. Because Ephesians, 
points out to us. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Or give room to the devil. We're letting the sun go down on our anger and we're nursing those grudges, whether it's in the home. I just mentioned the home because that seems to be the place where it happens the most. But even if it's with some breath, you're not letting Jesus be Lord. If on the job you're taking vengeance against that co-worker that, that stabbed you in the back or took your promotion or slandered you to the boss, then you're not letting Jesus be Lord of your life. Because Jesus said in Romans chapter 12, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own vengeance, but leave room for the vengeance of God, because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. We're taking our own revenge. We're not letting Jesus be Lord. You, you see the point? So easily we come up with why we're exceptions to what's written, and we go our own way. And when we're doing that, we're slamming that door back in Jesus' face. And we're not making room for Jesus to be Lord. Jesus is used to that. When he came into the world, there wasn't room for him. He didn't have a place to lay his head as he taught. And there was so little room for him that they finally had to kill him to try to get him out. But three days later, he rose again. And he's wanting room in your world, in your life. Are you making room for him?